Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Tonight, tonight, as we continue in our Advent series, which we haven't been doing, we haven't done an Advent series, but I'm going to kind of lean into Christmas a little bit tonight. And I'm just going to open with a verse which really is not a Christmas verse. Let me shut my phone off. But uh, a familiar one to you, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, says this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, in the next verse, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We love that exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. That's a good thing to remember when, uh, if you can picture then God standing before you and asking you this, what do you want me to do for you? You know, Jesus did that. You know who he said that to? A blind man. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls him over, walks over to him. What do you want me to do for you? Now, what if? Now, this is what prayer is, typically, anyway. We go to God, and and I know there's more to prayer than this, but in its simplest definition, we're asking God to do something, give us something, change something. What would you ask him? What can you imagine? What do you think would be the best thing you could ask for? And I'm not talking being selfish. Because he's able to do that, and he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond that. You know, and, and I think, honestly think that God sometimes gets frustrated at the shortness of our list, the weakness of our requests. All I want, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. All I want, Lord, I don't ask for a lot. I just want this. And you know, God answers our prayers. That is our fervent effectual, faith-filled prayers, according to the book of James, in ways that exceed what we are asking for. He doesn't think like we do. Uh, You know, Isaiah, we can look at this, Isaiah 55, verse 8, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor uh, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So he doesn't think like we do, but he doesn't think different from us in the sense that he thinks opposite from us. He just thinks higher. His ways are not the opposite of our ways. They're just higher. They're beyond often what we're capable of imagining and therefore uh, capable of asking for. But he's still a good God. You know, some people, they'll take that verse and say, well, as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Uh, that means uh, God doesn't see good and evil the same, same way we do. We're limited in our thinking, but God, God doesn't see things that way. No, God is still good, and he has still given us the capacity to determine between good and evil. It's just that he's better. He's better than us. He thinks higher, and he thinks bigger. 
And uh, again, I think a lot of times what we're asking for is too small. And God, being good, answers with more than we ask for. For instance, uh, we see many times uh, David crying out for victory over his enemies. And we see this, and we're inspired, and we ask for victory. We look at the people who are harming us, and we want to come out on top. And, uh, but what Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 7 says, If your ways please me, I'll make even your enemies to be at peace with you. That's a better answer, isn't it? I'm, going to, I'm not just going to give you victory over your enemies. You do that, and they're still your enemy. They'll wait till your foot's off their neck, and they'll turn on you as soon as they can. Much better to eliminate the enmity between you and your enemy. And make your enemy be at peace with you. That's a better answer to that prayer, isn't it? Even if what we're asking for is victory, God is thinking higher and answers better. If your ways please him. And again, we've talked about this many times. But a lot of the times what we're asking for when we talk to God about a difficulty in our life, Not all the time. Difficulties come for a number of reasons. Difficulties come because we live in a sinful world. Difficulties come because we live in a world uh, that is broken by sin. Not just the effects of other people's sin we're dealing with. Not just the effects of our sin. But also the effects of a broken world, including uh, disasters and disease and things like that. They're not always demonic attacks. But a lot of the times what we are asking for is deliverance from the result of or the consequences of our sin. God is thinking higher. God says, I want to deliver you from sin. I want to deliver you from sin itself. Because once again, I think way too often, people make the mistake that we fail to see that the worst effect of our sin is not poverty, it's not sickness, But the fact that our sin takes steps toward building a barricade between us and God that the cross destroyed, whether whether it's through feeling guilty or uh, more directly, I think, when we we cave into sin, especially habitually, what the Bible calls sinning with a high hand or a cherished sin, something we won't relinquish, uh, we're simply not living or acting in faith. To continue in sin is not to be acting in faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we can't pretend that we're in faith for one thing and not acting in faith for another. So the biggest, uh, the, the most damaging effect of sin is its effect on our relationship with God. Now here's the main text for tonight. In Isaiah chapter 64 This is actually, I, I preached out of this many years ago. Uh, around Christmas, there was something about it that grabbed me, and I can't remember why. I was reading, and, I, and there was something in it, uh, and, we'll, and we'll talk about it tonight. Uh, and then uh, I saw somebody post a, a, a portion of this passage on Facebook. And so I, quote, I, I commented on it. I said, I preached from that this morning. And some other pastor got on there and said, well, it looks like you're following the lectionary like the rest of us. And it was some Lutheran pastor. I don't want to follow an electionary at all. But apparently this was part of their Advent reading uh, for that year. So anyway, uh, 
Let's start in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood and causes water, and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In, this, in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like un, an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, and there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. This is a desperate prayer from captivity. They've been surrounded by their enemies. They've been defeated. The city of Jerusalem is in ruins. And they are acknowledging their sin and crying out to God for help. They have been here before, haven't they? This is, again, one more uh, cycle in this repeating cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. But this one really harkens back to the exodus. When they were in, you know, they had been been invited into Egypt as guests, as royal guests because of Joseph. They grew into a numerous people over the course of hundreds of years. And then Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh or a new Pharaoh, put them in bondage because he feared their numbers until they began to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And again, at that point, it wasn't so much of a repenting thing as much as it was, oh, Lord, uh, they're crying out. And God raises up Moses, delivers them. And then what? They get out, finally, after the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and everything, and God leads them to the mountain where he gives them the law. And do you remember what happened here? This cloud descends, and Moses goes up, and all the people are invited. Close. Come close. Come close. And the the cloud comes down, and the lightning, and there's there's a shaking. There's there's possibly a volcanic-type activity here, but it was scary. And the people, do you remember their reaction? You know what, Moses? You go up there for us. We're going to go back over here. We're going to keep our distance from God. We're really glad for what he did for us, but getting too close to him is messing with us a little too much. So you go up, you come back down and tell us what he says. Now they're praying for it to happen again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Come down, cause the mountains to shake and the water to boil. Why? Show yourself like that to your enemies. We want the nations to fear you. Now, to their credit, now this prayer goes on, okay? And I believe it's Isaiah praying the prayer of the people here. The prayer goes on, again, to acknowledge their iniquities, to acknowledge the fact that they have withdrawn from God. But interestingly, that the, it's interesting to me that the first thing they pray when they pray about a manifestation of the presence of God, a manifestation of the power of God, is to show their enemies who he is. When really, shouldn't our prayer first be 
manifest yourself to me. Show me who you are. When we get a proper and respectful view of who God is, it'll change the way we pray. We'll pray bigger. And we'll pray out of a, a, a purer heart. We'll be praying with God's motives. Do you remember, and, and this is something that, that we've never quite, uh, we, it, I don't know if it's possible as long as we inhabit this flesh and the things that are pulling on us, if we're ever going to get the, uh, well, we know, we're not. We see now is through a glass darkly, right? Uh, but there's also this idea of pr- uh, progressive revelation and illumination. You remember, this is one of my favorite stories, and this has more to do with Easter than to do with, with Christmas, but you remember the, the triumphal entry? And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's riding on the colt of a donkey, and the people are saying what? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you remember what Hosanna means? Save now. Save now. They were ready for him to manifest himself as the Messiah. They'd watched his ministry. They'd watched his work, and they're like, okay, Jesus, if you're going to save now we'll believe you. We will confess you as the Messiah, but now. Meaning, what, was their, what did they see as their problem? What was the Messiah there to do? Get Rome off their backs. Elevate them back to the powerful nation that they once were. All, all that Judea wanted at the time of the triumphal entry was to be free of Roman rule, and to be sitting on top of the world, they, they wanted to look, put us back just like it was under David and Solomon. All Judah wanted in this prayer in Isaiah 64 was to be free from captivity. Deal with our enemies so we can go home. And just like God had something bigger in mind for the captives in Judah... He had something bigger in mind for the Judeans of Jesus' day. Jesus slipped under the radar for a lot of Jews in his day because he wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting. In their mind, he wasn't enough of a Messiah. But the fact is, he was much, much more. They wanted freedom from Rome. Jesus came to free them from their sin. He didn't just come to free them from their sin. He came to free all mankind from sin. And God, in, in, when he did rescue, uh, you know, the, the verse I quoted from Proverbs, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is essentially what led to their release from captivity. When they went back, it's because there was a peaceful relationship between Cyrus and the Jews, uh, largely through, through Nehemiah. So, we think about how Jesus was so much more than the people wanted him to be, not just more than they thought he was. He was much more than they want. They wanted somebody to lead them against Rome, but he was there to free them from the thing that really imprisoned them. He's still much, much more than we often picture Jesus to be. Sometimes he's more than we want him to be. And I guess one of the things I would ask you as we come up on Christmas and we start with the question, you know, what do you want? If you could have all you want, what is it that you really want? Can you try, if you figure out what it is you really want, what you would ask God for, and then ask yourself this, can you trust, can you even believe that God wants more for you than that? It's easy just, you know, we look at the lives of these people. I've expressed this before. Uh, I, I don't get, I, I'm not as careful 
as, as maybe I should be. But sometimes when I'm talking about these biblical characters, I'm picturing them in my mind, and I want this to be as real as possible. Uh, but their, their flaws and the lessons we learn from their lives are so glaring, and it's just so easy to talk about because we're reading about them in a book. But I always, at least most of the time, I'm very mindful that we're going to meet these people someday. They're real people. What if somebody was writing the Bible in our day and they used your life as an example? Would it be weird because, you know, the flaws and everything are going to be in there? Your worst sins written down for history to read, like David. And I don't know how I got off on that. But anyway, if we, if we pray, if we, we figure out what we really want, what we, and we th- that's it, we, we, we think we know, just like they really thought they knew. And that's why I started to say, the, the people even in Jesus' day, uh, it's easy to look at them and say, oh, they, had such small, they were so small-minded. All they wanted was freedom from Rome, and Jesus was going to go to the cross and free them from their sin. But it's easy for us to think we have such a good handle on exactly everything we need that this is the only way you can answer this prayer, God. And trust that if God doesn't do it exactly the way that we ask him to, It's only because he's thinking higher and he's thinking better. Because he's a good God and he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. And we've got to stop thinking about that in terms of, oh, God, I need $1,000 and God giving us a million instead. I'm all for that. But sometimes it's a bigger issue than that, isn't it? And back to the thinking small We, we do have to be bold enough. You know, even if we think, uh, don't get this backwards. When we pray these prayers, they need to be big prayers. But even our big prayers are not too big for God to do exceedingly abundantly beyond that, right? But the fact is, too many people pray small prayers. Maybe even some of us. Uh, but here's a line for you. Too many people read Job. Remember Job, right? Job is famous for, if you had to say Job is famous for one thing, what's he famous for? Suffering. Suffering. Funny, he lived all those years and suffered a tiny bit of it in the grand scheme of things, but that's what he's famous for. So, well, that's what the book's about, right? The book's really one long conversation uh, between a bunch of old guys talking about Job's suffering. But, uh, and I think because it's a long book, People think Job must have suffered a long time, but most people think he didn't. Most scholars think he didn't. This was a fairly brief episode. But anyway, we see what happens. Job loses his stuff, loses his family, loses his health. But he holds on to his life, and he holds on to his faith. And I think too many people read Job, and they treat it like an instruction manual for managing our expectations. Too many people treat Job like an instruction manual for managing their expectations. You know, Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I think some people's expectations are, uh, well, look at Job. You can steal from me. Just don't kill me. A thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. What are my expectations? Well, I'll look at Job. He got stuff stolen from him. 
but he wasn't killed, he wasn't destroyed. So these are my expectations. But what did Jesus say? (laughs) I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What does the Bible say? What does the New Testament say about Job? You remember this from when we uh, read James on Wednesday night? Let's look at it really quick. James chapter 5. Verse 11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The only New Testament reference to Job, and I know we talked about this when I was in Job a couple years ago now probably, but it's funny, if if suffering is such a central part of the Christian experience, and we are, we, we will suffer, but Jesus told us what we'd suffer, and it's persecution. Uh, but if Job is supposed to be the manual, the, the, the instruction manual on, on, on how to suffer, how to endure suffering, uh, and if suffering is such a central part of the Christian experience, why isn't there more New Testament references? Why, why aren't there more New Testament references to Job? Be like Job. Suffer like Job. No, the only reference to Job in the whole New Testament, this famous sufferer, the most famous sufferer in the Bible, the only reference is the end. And what happened at the end of Job? He got back double, and he lived another, how long? 100 plus years, right? Was it more? Anybody remember? He lived a long time. (laughs) Got to enjoy everything that God gave him back. And I want you to understand, please understand this, as we head into this, I am so, I love Christmas. I absolutely love it. I love the anticipation. I love the history, all the full force of, of every promise in the Old Testament leading to the coming of the Messiah happening at a birth on a date 2,000 years ago. I mean, a point in history, something we can point to, this happened. This is when all these promises came into being. God gave us his son. And we can argue about the exact date. There's no sense in arguing about it, but we know it happened. God gave us his son, and he did not give us his son so that we could live like Job. He didn't give us his, let me put it, let me be more specific. He didn't give us his son so that we could live like Job lived during his relatively brief period of suffering. He gave us his son so that we could live like his sons and daughters. He didn't give us his son so that we could live like Job during his brief period of suffering. He gave us his son so that we could live like his sons and daughters. And that is more than health and provision and security, although you'd better believe it includes your health, your provision, and your security. It is victory. It is walking in the constant assurance that we know his voice. It is walking in the constant assurance that we know his will and the constant assurance that we walk in his pleasure. God delights in us. He rejoices over us. I, you know, last week we were looking at the, uh, um, the, uh, when P- uh, Peter, James, and John, the transfiguration. They follow Jesus up on the mountain. They see him transfigured before them. He's talking with Elijah and Moses, and Peter spouts off, Oh, this is good that we're here, Lord. Let's build three tents and hang out here for a while. And God says, What? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Wouldn't you love 
to hear God say that about you as he's introducing you to someone. This is my daughter. I'm pleased. I'm well pleased with her. This is my son. I'm well pleased with him. And again, it's not about jumping through hoops. You know that, right? You know I'm not a legalist. He sees us like he sees Jesus. And he has so much available for us to have and so much available for us to do. If we will listen, if we will read, if we will pray, and if we will obey, step out and ask for these things. Lord, and again, sometimes it's like, I would do anything if God would just tell me what to do. All I can tell you is continue to be faithful in the things that you are doing. Leading a blessed life. I was, I was listening to uh, Ravi again. He's kind of my go-to podcast when I'm cooking. If I'm going to be in the kitchen for a while, I've got a Bluetooth speaker in there. Whether I'm cleaning up the kitchen, which I usually have to do before I cook. And, uh, and my wife is a good cook, by the way. She just doesn't enjoy it, and I do. So that's, the kitchen's kind of my domain most of the time. And uh, so I'm in there listening to him, and he was, he was speaking at a business leaders conference. And he was speaking to a businessman who uh, had such a desire to do more for God. Uh, he had a passion, and so he wanted to go to Bible school. And uh, I can't remember, I, 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 uh, I'm going to get some of the details wrong, but he essentially went to the, uh, and this was over in the, in the uh, somewhere in the east. It, wasn't, it might have been even in the Middle East somewhere. Uh, wasn't an American guy, but he went to his uh, pastor or a mentor or somebody uh, to pray, and this guy prayed with him and said, uh, listen, you've got a passion, but you don't have a calling. And the guy was crushed. He was disappointed. He said, what do you mean? Why would God give me this passion if he didn't give me a calling? He says, there's a difference. And I remembered, as soon as Ravi was saying this, I remember Patsy Caminetti saying the exact same thing at Ramah. A burden, she said, a burden does not equal a calling. She says, the proper response to a burden is to pray. All right? calling something else but he says he said and and this this uh, guy whoever it was told him he says look your giftings are very very clear you are a businessman you're an entrepreneur you are a money maker your gift to the church is to support those who are gifted to do the things you want to do but you're not gifted to do and that's pretty blunt but once this guy heard that once he it's, it's like i think he was laboring under the illusion that if i don't do this then i'm not really serving god and, uh, and it was a release to him, and, it, and it, it enabled him to really focus and pour his energy into the things he was good at. And he found fulfillment in being, uh, being the money, but behind some very, very effective ministers. So, uh, anyway, all that to say, when I'm talking about living a life where God looks at you and says, In him, in her, I am well pleased. In you, I am well pleased. You, we have got to get out of this mindset. And, and I love it. I love the fact that I belong to a church and, a, and an association of churches that honors those in ministry. I believe it. You know, give honor where honor is due. Uh, you know, pastor appreciation, you guys honor us. You guys have always been very, very faithful to, to show and, and express your appreciation. And that's all good. You know, and, and it's scriptural. But honoring people because of an office or because of a gift, of a gift is not the same thing as saying they are a higher-ranking person in the kingdom. Uh, 
when we, we, it's a huge mistake to think that because somebody is an effective minister or even a faithful minister, that they outrank somebody who is just as faithful as a layperson. Uh, I, it used to, I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit now but, that you've probably seen me or heard me chase before, but it used to irritate me, and I don't see it as much anymore because I don't read some of the same publications. They're probably still advertising things like this. There'd be some conference of ministers somewhere, and, there'd, and there's two-page spread in a magazine saying God's generals are convening in such and such a city. And I'm like, how do you have any idea who God's generals are? I think God's generals are people you've never heard of who spend more time at least more faithfully spend time in their prayer closet, praying for the lost, praying for their church, praying for their family, praying for their pastors, who are doing real hand-to-hand spiritual warfare. Man, I'm up here. I'm doing the thing. I am convinced that right now, Scott Millis is where God has called him to be, doing the things God has called him to do. Happens to be as pastor of this church. I, I do not, for one second, harbor the illusion that I am the spiritual giant in this room today. I have no clue in terms of God. Now, I believe there's such a thing as, uh, you know, there's different levels of reward. And there's allusions to rank in the kingdom of God. Those are who are giving cities to rule over. Uh, no idea. My, maybe I am the highest ranking person in the room. But if I am, it's not because I'm the pastor of this church. That's what I'm saying do you get that? Don't despise where you are in this life. Be faithful where God has placed you. And if there's something else he's given you to do, he'll give you uh, uh, not just a, a he, number one, he'll, he, one of the very first, uh, at least it was a sermon, I, it might have been a series, one of the first uh, sermons or series I preached as pastor here in the last few years was on being led. And one of the ways he leads us is our, with our desires. Don't be led out of guilt. Well, if I really loved God, I'd be doing something more spiritual with my life. No, he'd give you a desire. He'd give you a dissatisfaction. And he'll give you confirmation. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.